Most people are familiar with the story of David. We see him throughout history in music, literature, and art. David is this amazing hero, an elegant poet, and he seems to have this impossibly close relationship with God, the kind of relationship that only an iconic Bible character could have. But when you look closer, you see his flaws on display. And despite the years in between our lifetimes, his story starts to look a lot like our own. The truth is, the story of David is the story of all of us. A perfect God loving an imperfect person. Man, isn't that the case? Isn't that the case when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11? Uh, will you stand with me? We're just going to read one verse together and get right to the text. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. You may be seated. The king was not at war. While all his men were off to battle against the final enemy, King David stayed behind. He thought to himself, they don't need me after all. Everything I've touched, God has blessed. Why would this be any different? A king in his palace, bored with all that was at his disposal, he rose from a nap and went for a leisurely walk on the roof of his palace. Taking a look at that all that was his, it was a pleasant afternoon. The sun lowering in the sky and the slight breeze. David did not notice its beauty or enjoy the cool of the spring day. His heart was indifferent. He walked along the edge looking down at the houses below, thinking what privilege they had living next to the king his men, these people. His eyes stopped. A window. He could see the shape of a woman silhouetted behind a thin curtain. And with the slightest breeze, the curtain would give way just a little, just enough. He moved, turned his head as to have the better vantage point when the wind would move the thin veil. He was not at war, he was the king on his roof, looking at his people, a beautiful woman. Unbeknownst to her, his eyes invaded her space and his mind lingered, and it lingered. Unbeknownst to her, his mind took advantage before his hands would. One of his servants stood nearby at his beck and call. Come here. Who, who, who lives in this house? Who is this woman? Isn't that Iliam's daughter, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba? Hmm. And he lingered. He thought. He was not at war. He was the king. Bring her to me. 
The servant paused for a moment, processing the command he was hearing, only moving when he could tell the king was unyielding. Messengers went to Bathsheba and took her. David was not at war. He was the king. And he took what he wanted. And when he had, he sent her away. We'll finish the rest of the story in a moment, but just let me back up just a little bit to retrace some of David's steps or missteps. David was not where he was supposed to be, was he? From the very beginning, the scripture makes this very, very clear to us. In the spring, the time when kings go out to battle, David stayed in Jerusalem. Before he even made it to the roof, David was in the wrong place. Verse 2 says, it happened. The truth is, sexual temptation, even though it can catch us off guard, never just happens. We are more prone to this kind of temptation when we're not at war. For David, he had grown complacent, even spiritually lazy. I mean, God had blessed everything that he had touched at this point. Every battle, every war. His men didn't need him. He wasn't preoccupied with the business of the kingdom. He was on a couch taking a nap when most everyone else was gone and doing the work of the kingdom. And really, there's no telling how long he had been in this very bored, complacent, leisurely place. We don't know. But what we do know is some of the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119.11. Remember this? Let me hide your word in my heart so I will not, what? Sin against you. The psalmist also writes in verse 59 of Psalm 119, when I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. David had not been looking at his ways. His heart had not been seeking after God. His heart had not been in the word of God, trying to measure where he was going and testing his own heart. He had become spiritually complacent and lazy, and it was an easy setup to be completely caught off guard by temptation. He was on the roof. And when temptation came, he wasn't prepared at all. He didn't go to war. He lingered. The Bible tells us that she was beautiful. Bathsheba. And when he encountered her and saw her on the roof, he did not turn away. In fact, he craned his head to get a better look. And then he inquired, who is that woman? David could have left at any point. He could have turned right around and gone back down to where he was taking a nap. He could have avoided this. He had every chance to do what was right, but he didn't. He lingers. And this is why the scripture lists her father's name along with the husband's name. He had every opportunity to honor dad 
This is a dear friend of mine's daughter. He had every opportunity to honor Uriah. This is one of my soldiers, one of my closest, closest, most loyal men. This is his wife, and he could have honored the Lord, but he didn't. For all we know, it didn't even cross his mind. It's not until next week in chapter 12 that it dawns on him the gravity of what he's done. David had every opportunity to run from temptation, but he didn't. He lingered. He was in the wrong place, and he lingered. We live in a culture that specializes in the linger, don't we? The enemy knows what he's doing. He has our world convinced that our sexuality is to be bartered, paraded. It says to particularly men, it says, look, linger. It's only natural. It's the way you're wired. Sex is just a thing like playing football or chewing gum. And some of us will even reason she agreed to take those pictures. She's asking for us to look. The world specializes in the linger. It says, stop and stay a while. Don't walk off the roof. Don't turn away. It's okay. Linger. We know that's not true because of the shame that we feel in our own heart when we give in to temptation. But the world would say otherwise. It specializes in the linger. David was in the wrong place. His heart was all wrong. And he wasn't prepared and he didn't go to war. We have boys and young men and adults dying on this battlefield every single day. And women too, caught up in the linger. Stay a while. David didn't leave it on the roof. The Bible's very clear, he took exactly what he wanted. He was king. I don't know what transpired in Bathsheba's mind once she found herself in the palace, removed from her house. But I do know that the king used his power to get exactly what he wanted. This was more than adultery. In fact, I think some of the titles on this passage in the scripture should be changed. It's not David's adultery. It's David's assault. That makes David responsible. Men, it makes us responsible. Regardless of the motivations or the actions of a woman or women, the care and purity of a woman's heart and life rests upon the responsibility of men. Every time. We can say she shouldn't have dressed like that. She shouldn't have said that. That does not take away the responsibility that God has given us as men to fight and pursue the purity of women. I know this because the scripture says so. You remember what Timothy, Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 2? He says, when, when, for a woman that's older than you and for younger women, I want you to think of them as your sisters and as your mothers for all purity. Paul says to Timothy, young man, you are responsible to pursue at all costs the care and purity of the woman and women that are around you. Think of them as moms and sisters. Significant responsibility for us. 
But the world says take. And Jesus says the taking begins in the mind. Right? Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 28. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But let me tell you, adultery begins right here, Jesus says. And so if we put those two together, what Paul tells Timothy and what Jesus has told us in the Sermon on the Mount, that we need to wage war against the taking in the heart. And we need to fight for the purity of the women around us in our hearts. That's a switch in perspective, isn't it? That we are called to pursue for the care and purity of moms and sisters. Can I just speak practically for a moment? How in the world do we begin to avoid being in the wrong place? How do we avoid the temptation to linger and the taking, even the taking in our own heart? We go to war. We go to war. David wouldn't go to war. At every opportunity, he had to go to war to wage the battle against lust in his own heart. He didn't. But how do we avoid being in the wrong place? How do we win the battle of the heart and mind? We go to war. We go to war. And it's a mostly a war of the heart and mind. It's asking ourselves the question, will I trust God in all that he says about my sexuality? Will I fight to make sure my heart is in the right place. That's where we belong, in that fight, in that battle. We fight to believe the truth about ourselves, what God has to say about who we are. We, we fight to heed the warnings in the word of God, and we fight to cling to the promises of God. That's where we belong. That's the battle we should be Waging, not taking a nap on the couch when all the men have gone to war. We hold on to scriptures like draw near to God and he will draw near to you or blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. We heed the warnings of don't deceive yourself. Bad company corrupts good character. And let me tell you, and I'm not nitpicking on media and entertainment, but listen, even entertainment and the media that we put in front of our face and allow to come into our minds through our ears is bad company a lot of the time. And we say it's just a show or it's just a song. But if it's true that meditating on the scriptures can shape our heart and our mind and guide our steps, then it's also equally true that what we put in our face and our ears can also guide our hearts and shape our hearts and guard our steps, right? Absolutely true. And so bad company corrupts good character, even if it's just a screen or a phone. Be mindful, cling to those promises, heed to those warnings. Solomon wrote, can a man keep burning, keep burning coals in his life without in his lap without being burned? Heed those warnings that are all throughout the scripture. Young men, Christian men, I want you to hear this from me. There's not a day that goes by that as your pastor, I do not have to be prepared to go to war. Not one day. I have to guard my heart. I have to be prepared to use scripture because I don't know when that image is going to round the corner 
or that thought's going to come into my mind. And if I'm not ready or prepared, then I'm just, I can just as easily move into temptation as anyone else can. And I'm your pastor. If I have to fight, will you please fight? Go to war. That's where we belong. We can't be leisurely or lethargic when it comes to our spiritual health. Go to war. Hide God's word in your heart. Meditate on the scriptures. Equip yourselves with verses that will help you win the battle. Quickly, that's not all of the story, is it? Just verses 6, 8, and 14 of chapter 11. Let me just read these. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Verse 8, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. We know that Uriah, because he wanted to honor his men who are out on the battlefield with very little, their lives on the line, he says, I'm not going to take advantage of the present of the king. We know that. Later, when that doesn't work, his hope was Uriah would go and be with his wife, because at this point we know that Bathsheba has become pregnant. But in verse 14, when that doesn't work, David does this. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back for him that he may be struck down and die. From the beginning of the story, we're informed that David's sin will not stay hidden, but David pulls out all the stops and does all that he can to keep his sin hidden. He wanted to keep that little green dot in that water jar in one place, but it doesn't work that way. He did all that he could. He tried to set Uriah up, and when that didn't work, he sent Uriah out to die. The sin will not stay hidden. and will never stay that way. Listen, the greater our commitment to hide our sin and brokenness, the deeper and wider the hole is dug to keep it buried. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But look what David's sin and hiding does. What does it do? Verses 24 through 25. The archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, watch how indifferent David is. Thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you. For the sword devours now one and now the other. In the wake of David's sin and his effort to keep concealed his sin, men die. Not just Uriah. We don't know the number, but we know many men died in the effort of David to try to keep his sin concealed. Sin keeps a, leaves a destructive wake when we try to keep it hidden rather than confessing it and making it right as soon as possible. Not to mention the indifference of David's heart towards this. And the longer we commit our path to sin or yield to our own brokenness over and over again, the colder our hearts become, the more comfortable we are with the destruction that it leaves all around us. And the longer our brokenness stays in the dark, the greater the wake it leaves behind. 
always. But for some of us, it's very easy to say, glad I'm not David. Glad that wasn't me. Look how far David has fallen. It's easy to isolate this to David's tragic failure, but it's not just him, is it? For me, perhaps the greatest burden of this tragic story is not just David's or Bathsheba's brokenness, the taking, the cost that it took to try to keep this sin hidden. Perhaps the greatest burden of this tragic story is that it points to our own sexual brokenness. We have all been impacted by brokenness. And ourselves are broken. And it has been devastating. It's why locker rooms and workplaces are filled with talk of taking rather than protecting. It's why many are hurting, even in this very room, from the actions of another. It's why many wrestle with shame and forgiveness. It's why fathers worry about their daughters. It's why tension and resentment and pain can exist in many marriages. It's why our girls feel immense pressure to look and feel sexy. It's why many wrestle and with value and self-worth. It's why many are in hurt and confusion about gender and identity. We are broken and live in a sexually broken world. All of us. And for the most part, the church has been silent. We've said things don't have sex. We've said, wait until you're married. We've said, don't dress immodestly. We've said, don't look at images. We've said, don't be gay. But we have never talked about the heart of God as it relates to his creation and sexuality. We kept silent. And it's left many people hurt and confused and unloved including many people who have grown up in churches. But we know why the church has not been silent. The world has most certainly been very vocal. It has pressed its doctrine into every part of our lives, schools, entertainment, the marketplace, science, psychology, you name it. The world is there pressing the doctrine of sexuality, saying things like, you go your own way, you define your sexuality, follow your heart or how you feel. But... God, over the course of the writing of the scriptures, and we find it over and over again, he says, listen, don't you know the heart is deceitful above all things? Will you listen to me? With these voices so loud and prominent, it's no wonder we begin to believe God doesn't have much to say about sex. Or if he does, it's outdated and certainly doesn't seem loving. Judges 21 and 25 says, in those days there was no king. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And that's where we are. 
even in the church. We do what was right in our eyes. And we're broken. And we're broken. When it comes to sexuality and sex in our world, God isn't king, we are king. What do we do with that? When we look at the landscape of our world, not just the United States, but across the world, we see heaps and heaps of brokenness. What do we do with that? We have been impacted by brokenness. What in the world do we do with that? There are people in this room that are hurting and suffering from sexual brokenness. What in the world do we do with that? It's not just David. It's us. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 6, when he encounters the Lord in that vision, God high and lifted up, and the angels are surrounding the Lord and saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You was and is and is to come. You know what? David did, I mean, uh, Isaiah did. He fell on his face. He did two things. One, he said, Lord, I am a man of unclean lips. He was acknowledged his own brokenness. And then he said, I'm also a man of unclean people, an unclean land, an unclean world. Will we weep for the brokenness of our world? where the enemy would want to rob us and pull us away from the most important parts of who we are as sexual human beings. And he will pervert it, he will twist it, he will do everything to keep us to know of God's giftedness in our sexuality, as well as the beautiful metaphor that sexuality gives of a covenant relationship with God. Satan will do all that he can to keep us from knowing that and trusting that and looking forward to that. Will we weep? for the brokenness in our world, for our brokenness. We're gonna move into a time of response. I'm gonna pray and the band's gonna begin um, to lead us. Um, My question for you is, will you weep and will you pray? Will you weep and will you pray? Some of you have been hurting uh, and are hurting Will you bring that into the light? And I'm not talking right here, but will you trust someone to speak your hurt and to know forgiveness and restoration? Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for your word, even when it's not pretty. And it paints a picture for us that is tragic, like David and Bathsheba and all the results of his sin. Lord, I pray that you would move your people today, now, right here in Lagos, to a keen awareness of our own sexual brokenness and vulnerabilities and hurt and pain and weep for the uncleanliness of our people, including us. And that that we would say, restore us restore us so that we can know you in all your fullness. Lord, I pray that uh, you help us to take steps towards restoration.
and great compassion and grace today. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen.